1: Hey, welcome back to My Mrs. Maisel Pod. I'm your host, Kevin Pollack. How are you? You know, I love hearing from you when you write to me at mymrsmaselpod at gmail.com. And I'll be reading a very important email a little later. Um, I really do like reading your emails. So, keep them coming. Yeah. At mymrsmaselpod at gmail.com. Let me know... If you have any suggestions, comments, um, you know, questions, for anyone who ever uh, worked on the show or had anything to do with it, including me, yeah, I I love answering your questions and passing them along to other folks and having them answer. Write and let me know how you enjoy those. My Mrs. Maiselpot at gmail.com. Today's guest. Well, folks, this is a biggie. As you've no doubt seen from the thumbnail photo and the listing, it is multi-Emmy award winning and every other award that a cinematographer can win, David Mullen. Now, a little background if you haven't done it. David Mullen, well, first of all, those Emmys. I think I've told the story of when he won against the uh, last season of Game of Thrones. Yeah, pretty sure I told that story, so I'm not going to do it again. Go back, look for it, find it. But he just won again, as I'm recording this, early in the first month of 2024, like a, a couple of weeks ago. He won, in our last go-round from season five, he beat House of Dragons for Best Cinematographer. I mean, this guy, he is revered within his own community. He speaks to um, students and and up-and-coming cinematographers. If you are, in fact, one of them, this two-parter uh, is... One half. I know. I talked to Mullen on two different occasions. Each one of those occasions, there are two in total, will be broken into two parts. So there's four parts. Now, I'm not going to play them all back to back. I'll play the first conversation we have, starting with this episode as part one, and then there'll be part two next week, and then I'll take some a break and put in some other folks, and then we'll bring back Mullen. This first... Uh, part of our first conversation, not easy to get this man, very busy. Um, We get into his background, self-taught, how how that happened, why that happened. It's it's all fascinating. Um, From a creative standpoint, even if cinematography is not your bag, people always ask about the look of the show. Yes, production design. Yes, wardrobe. Yes, set deck. Yes, uh, the folks who wrangled the automobiles. But my, oh, my. Props. Let's not forget props. The cinematic look of this show, well, we beat dragons. Uh, David Mullen is a one-of-a-kind... Genius. And he talks us through his process and how he got to the show, what it was like starting uh, with the pilot, with Amy and Dan, how he works, what he goes through. Um, I ask a question towards the end from a friend of uh, Jamie and mine, Zach Fox who is a director and cinematographer in his own right, who has been in a uh, class or Q&A watching and listening and learning from David Well. So he we offered up a, a, a great couple of questions, one of which is answered in the body of the interview. And then the second one I posed directly to David, but I didn't give Zach credits. I'll do that now, Zach Fox. Um, and David answers it beautifully. Um, yeah. And then in in part two, we'll get into uh, the first couple episodes. Uh, Excuse me. First couple seasons of the show where I ask him to break down very specific moments in very specific episodes and seasons. So this first part is a great setup to one of the... um, most in-depth conversations i believe dare i say it david mullen has ever had for you the listener and again i'll be reading a very important email later but here now part one of david mullen enjoy And now ladies and jews mr david mullen david hello how are you so this is audio only but i will tell folks no surprise to me what i'm looking at is very well lit (laughs) in your space um how long did you uh did you ponder set up and work out your zoom space once uh well probably the pandemic created these Lovely opportunities. Yeah, we've
0: ended up making our guest bedroom the the Zoom office room, so it's like probably you too, you know, so we don't get interrupted. Um, yeah. I don't get interrupted. My wife is takes courses on Zoom and other things too, so she's she was in this room from nine to ten, and now I'm here. So, uh, but she doesn't. I use my uh, my personal still cameras as a Zoom camera, a Nikon,
1: whereas she doesn't use the computer so yeah right of course so yeah, that's right. the advantage that's why i find the brightest light i can sit in front of which is just a,
0: a window French
1: doors leading out to a deck and and uh but that gets reflected into my glasses you have no reflection
0: yeah well, i moved it i kept the light to the side but yes it's uh
1: oh i see so if i go over here yeah then i've got too much back but all right well i'll just i'll just look down <laughs> Um, Well, welcome. I'm uh, so very, very grateful you uh, were able to make some time. Well, I guess it's helpful that there are strikes going on still and helpful for my needs anyways, and not for uh, everyone else's, including my own as an actor. Um, You were uh, prepping in Paris for Amy and Dan's next show. Is that right? When everything was shut down, you were already there. Yeah, I was uh i
0: went twice in two two two-week blocks basically so i was there about four weeks of prep off and on Mm -hmm. Uh, and we got shut down it's mostly about location scouting meeting french crew and looking at the construction of sets
1: and having shot with a, a a paris background in um uh season two opener um did that give you a leg up at all well first of all had you shot in paris before the season two o- opener of maze
0: no I, I think technically um that shoot uh we did in 2018 is the only time i've shot out of the uh in europe basically and in paris so that was a new experience back then and uh yeah so some of this was just sort of now seeing what's changed in terms of filmmaking rules and the crew base and and the equipment and the rental houses and the stages uh, since five years ago or whatever, um, which doesn't wasn't much. Um, we have the same French uh, line producer helping us, so oh, um, right. so there's a lot of sort of crossover. The big difference, obviously, is that was a period show, so you're scouting for for what can work for 1959, 60. Where this is a contemporary show, so not trying to frame or hide anything modern necessarily uh which is good and especially since paris is under heavy construction right now there's a lot of work right now because the olympics are coming next summer so that it seems like half the streets have trucks and half the monuments have scaffolding in front of them oh yikes yeah
1: yeah i was just watching we started finally watching uh the gilded age huh. and they were shooting in central park and i and Yeah, you realize, oh, they don't have to dress any of the um, structures or grounds. It's just the people. And um, I thought, foolishly, that was one of the advantages of shooting in Paris. But, yeah, you've got all those cars and all the scaffolding of buildings and work that's being done. Yeah, I mean, Um, Paris is easier than New York
0: to to make 1960. There's huge lengths of blocks that are all, you know, turn 19th, 18th century. So it's yeah. not as hard as new york definitely um but like i said it's not a issue so much as that stylistically you know uh, the new show is uh sort of half new york half paris so right i've just, I've just got to think about what that means visually other than the obvious you know
1: <laughs> sure yeah well so. and i will i will uh try to get you back on the show once you've uh, got season one under your belt of that show but in the meantime uh why don't we talk about the sort of origin story for you and the mazel universe how did this begin
0: well interestingly i was interviewed by dan and amy a, a year before mazel for another show um the gilmore girls netflix show uh-huh. uh it was a phone interview i recall and i would been um recommended to them by Jamie Babbitt, who's a TV director that I've worked with uh, uh, many times, even on, I did a feature for her, I did a short film for her, and I did several television episodes with her over the years. So I've known her for a long time and she recommended me to them, but they um, they ended up hiring uh, Alex Nepomishi because he had just worked on Bunheads with them. Um, so I didn't get that job, but then a year later, um, the Maisel pilot comes along and I get a call again saying, you know, will you interview? And again, it recommended, I think by Jamie. So, uh, but this was an in-person interview uh, here in LA and that seemed to go well because I got hired for the pilot, um, which was shot in the fall of 2016. Right. And, uh, then it went picked up for series that spring. I went straight into another series called get shorty right after I did the Maisel pilot. And I, was working on get shorty when they started uh the second the first season i came in on episode four of the first season i they count the pilot as episode one right and then eric Mornier shot episodes two and three and then i came in on episode four which was a nice episode to come in on it was the episode where midge moves out of her apartment yeah into her parents apartment they were just switching the set over to to distort re- or turn it into the weissman apartment um and so I got to do that beautiful opening, uh, the Happy Days uh, montage where, where they, Midge remembers her happy times in that apartment. And right. it culminates in the the night out of Alex, uh, Midge, and Susie going out and hitting all the local bars and comedy right. clubs, um, which was a lot of fun too, just do this kind of montage of clubs It sort of culminated in the, co- the Copacabana club scene, which was right. our first big techno crane turning into a movie moving shot that ends up going to the tables, past the dancers and into the kitchen. That was the first time we had tried that kind of a shot. so it was it was a good episode to come to.
1: yeah, so going back to the pilot um where you will establish the look uh of the series, as is done in every pilot unless, you know, big changes are are needed and requested. But in this case, I feel as though, all the department heads spent, uh, as I've spoken to several, have spent um, you know a goodly amount of time to get on the same page, as they say, with Amy and Dan in terms of the look. So one of the things I was curious about with so many colors uh, from wardrobe, from Donna, mm-hmm. um, are, h- how aware are you? As you're designing what the look of the show will be, how how much sharing is going on between you and Donna in terms of building the visual on the pilot?
0: Well, the pilot, we had a lot of prep. So I saw designs for sets and designs for costumes. Um, some of the big things we had to plan for was like the opening wedding Um obviously Midge is in a wedding dress and everyone's in tuxedos so it wasn't that wasn't exactly a colorful scene in terms of wardrobe but um but the pilot was mainly concerned about creating the three looks of the world of um the gaslight in Greenwich Village the world of the Upper West Side and the world of Midtown where Joel works and the the way she travels between these three locations and the shifts and wardrobe and color and, and look and so that was what I sort of concentrated on the pilot. And that just sort of carried forward into the series. Uh, when I did the interview, Amy and Dan sort of gave me a list of what they didn't want, which is they didn't want a period look that looked faded and honeycomb, sepia, golden brown. They wanted um, color and energy and movement. Um, so a kind of modern approach in some ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
0: So, you know, Part of me was to, I looked, she also had me look at some Woody Allen films like um, uh, Hannah and Her Sisters, mainly because what I got out of the Hannah and Her Sisters was that um, she said, everyone looks really good in the film, but it's all, feels like they're in New York. And that's because it's all shot in location. There's no sets for that movie. It's all real lofts and real apartments and real restaurants. So, so doing a film, that film is sort of grounded in the reality of, of New York. And yet everyone has a slightly glamorized lighting at times on them. Uh, it's a it's sort of lit a little more old-fashioned than i would um but they clearly did this on location they took, must have put pipe grids in the ceiling and put little spots everywhere and so you know barbara hershey gets a nice key light in the doorway and then she walks to the table gets another nice key light so it's very carefully lit but uh but all on a real space and that's right. what i sort have of got out of of watching that um you know, part of me looking at 50s uh, movies and 50s advertisement and 50s reference material is I was trying to get a sense of the aesthetic of that time, which um, I kind of called aggressively pastel, you know, like, <laughs> the, like the, the colors themselves are like peach or pink or yeah. or something, but they pop out at you. And it's partly because the way they're designed, they're often set within a neutral background. So I've seen... Seems like a, a, you know, a yellow refrigerator in a beige or gray kitchen or or someone walking in a beige room, but in a cyan party dress or a, or a teal or or pink or something like that. So the colors pop out partly the way they're set against the more neutral background. But also the 50s movies tended to not play too much with colored lighting because they wanted the colors of the skin tones to look natural. They wanted the dresses and the costumes to reproduce accurately. Um, I didn't always follow that kind of rule, but I kept that in my mind that the kind is another term I came up with, which is sort of industrial optimism, which is sort of the feeling for fifties advertisement and films is that after the war, everything was getting better. You know, sure. the world is going to be better. The promise offices, everything was new. Um, But still in New York, there's a lot of pre-war design and houses. And that was something Bill Groom and I talked about. They have Greenwich Village is kind of the young hipsters, but in a kind of pre-war, brownstone, old world kind of environment, as opposed to Joel's office, which is in that 50s, Mears Van Der Rohe, international style kind of modernist quality. I was surprised when we walked down Park Avenue, Bill Groom would point out buildings and, and say, they look completely new to me. And he goes, oh, that was built in... 1953 that was built in 1959 i was like uh a lot of these office buildings uh you know they came from that period that that style that we're so yeah. used to so uh so that was sort of the things in my head uh the references to art and ads and, and the aesthetic values but within a modern lighting style and stuff and then yeah. i would bring in colors when i when it made sense to like the club scenes and yeah. restaurants and some of the night exteriors.
1: Yeah, we'll I'll get to that. I've got a list of uh environments to ask about. Um in the pilot, I'm trying to remember was uh was a Jim McConkie utilized?
0: No, no, we had a whole different crew on the pilot. Um right. Right, except for um yeah, I had a different gaffer, different key grip, um, different camera team. So yeah, it was all it was basically i don't have a lot of new york crew base that i can draw on because i'm from la um and these are all people that uh um dana gilbert our producer yeah bought in and but she really wanted to bring in her crew from uh boardwalk empire but they were all working that fall on other shows basically so um once we went into series she, w- she was able to bring in john Oates and charlie and. Um, but the camera crew actually came from uh, Eric Mounier. He's the one who brought um, Jim McConkey and Anthony Capello
1: into the show. Amazing. yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I I know that you um, seem to keep a um, encyclopedic uh, collection of of films and references cinema cinematic references. I know that only because I mentioned to you that I had written and was going to direct um, a contemporary set noir. Yeah. And in four seconds or less, you rattled off 11 noir films that I should maybe take a look at. I wrote them down and they're still on my phone. <laughs> and I've seen six of the 11. And um, and, and so where does that... Uh, is that a lifelong collection, uh, 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 enthusiasm? H- how does this begin for you in terms of being a cinephile with a purpose? Yeah, I I, I can't help
0: but have this love of old movies. Um, I don't know how much I can fold it into my own work uh, other than, you know, Amy has a love of old technical or musicals. So when we're, you know, waiting for a setup, I remember we are in the woods in the Catskills are waiting for sunset. And I found the, uh, the ax dance from, uh, seven brides for seven brothers on YouTube. And we started just watching the whole, you know, Michael Kidd choreographed dance number from that, um, which was a lot of fun. And being in a real log cabin, watching this uh, yeah. number, shot on a soundstage with fake trees and fake drops. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she loves these old movies too. And, and we have a lot of fun talking about them. Um, We've referenced them sometimes a little, you know, some shots from Cabaret and some other films. Uh, another film we both love together. So it does f- sometimes fold into my work, particularly if there is a period element. Um, but uh, it's mainly I started. I taught myself filmmaking, and at the time, I just loved. Uh, I I was in high school in the end of the '70s, so I was into Star Wars and Close Encounters, and I got into all Spielberg, Lucas um Ridley Scott world of science fiction films and wanted to get into filmmaking so as I read articles and interviews with these people all they talked about were the people that inspired them you know like Spielberg mentioned John Frankenheimer and I and I also kind of noticed Michael Curtiz was a kind of you know you look at Raiders of the Stark you look at Casablanca you can see a lot of similar camera moves even so I figured that if I was going to learn how to you know Make films like these current people. I had to watch the people's the films that they learned from, and I kept going back in time. Right, I'd I'd see a film by John Frankenheimer, and he'd say, "Well, my favorite film was, you know, this Howard Hawks film." And you read some Howard Hawks thing, and you start watching his early films, and you sort of start getting a sense of the the way history flows uh, and style and things change. So, but that was partly just out of love of watching movies. Um, You know, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't enjoy these old movies. Um, But it was partly a quest just to understand how we got to where we are now, whether it was cinematography-wise or directing-wise or or anything. I love, you know, history, and I love to see the story of history and how it leads to where we are today. So I'm always looking one step back and then
1: back and back, trying to peel back the curtain, so to speak. I wonder how many people decide to teach themselves cinematography based on the films they love i mean it makes sense you know storytellers of all kinds Um, i couldn't
0: get into film school for a while i was an undergraduate at ucla in english lit because i couldn't get into the film department but i spent all my time in the theater arts library at ucla reading american cinematographers and and other books and magazines i read every issue of american cinematographer going back to 1918 I've read every issue of Simpty journal going back to 1950. I've read every issue of the union cinematography magazine going back to the fifties, you know, British cinematography journals, everything. I just, I would just pull down years worth, sit there and read for a couple hours, you know? So that's sort of how I taught myself.
1: It seems much more extensive than most university courses. What, what (laughs) What you just mentioned. I, I doubt many students have been challenged to do so. Um okay, so when you are uh starting on episode what would be episode four, season one, um many uh the 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 three locations or three pieces that you mentioned you wanted to establish in the pilot, the apartment, the gaslight, and where Joel works. Two of those, of course, continue on um throughout several seasons. And One of the things that I uh, noticed working with you, I joined on episode two of season one. So we missed each other on the pilot. So by the time you show up um, on episode four, um, I instantly notice that while it's true, never let them see you sweat is... Uh, A a distant cousin of fake it till you make it. There was a sense about you that you were always, and this was true all the way to finishing season five, you always seemed the most relaxed, creative person on the set any given day. There would be a couple of moments where it seemed someone wasn't necessarily articulating what you would ask them to, and you you had to step in and uh, dare I say do it for them, but for the most part, um, whether it was a combination of you and the team that you had um, evolved with, but is that just a natural demeanor for you when working? Or do you actually find that creative, um, you know, people talk about being in the zone, that creative process, on on hand uh, on deck on stage to be uh, to, do you even sense a calming effect from the work or is that just in your dna i
0: i, f- I think i'm a nervous wreck while i'm shooting so i'm not <laughs> sure i'm glad i don't don't uh project that outwards i just keep it inwards um
1: wow wow
0: i just uh people notice that I get very focused. That's the term I, I hear often. D- don't bother David. He's he's very focused. And, then, and that can have a negative aspect too, because I forget to say hello to half the people in the morning when I show up. Because, you know, you walk on set, even before you walk on set, you're hit with 300 problems. Yep. And so you're thinking like, oh, uh, this I've got to move this over here. I've got to figure out this. I've got to be prepared for, for what may happen here. And then you forget to say hello to you know the actors as they come on the set or or even the director i've i've just like instantly already as yeah. if i'm 3 hours into the day and i haven't even started the day yet so it's it's because my brain just instantly goes into this kind of problem solving mode all the time um trying to stay ahead of the curve and uh, make sure it all looks good you know um a lot of the sort of more creative stylistic questions i hopefully have thought about in prep i don't yeah. Don't have a lot of prep on that this show, oddly enough, because um, Dan and Amy spend a lot of time writing during prep time. Yep. So when, you know, I basically sit there in the office for a few days and I just type ideas on a sheet of paper to for myself. Like, what if I play this scene as Sunset? What if I suggest this to Dan or Amy when we get there? Um, and then they'll come in uh, the second half of prep and and we'll go around all these locations and I'll get to throw these ideas i've had but also i I spent a lot of time going to donna or or bill groom's office you know or and just sitting there look at the blueprints look at the reference material right uh, we've come up with just uh as we talked about creating these environments a lot of them are one-off environments of this club or that club or this restaurant Um, i may have some ideas about colors and lighting but until i've seen what bill or don are planning I don't want to come up with some plan that's going to be fighting that, you know. And what? I remember once I had done a club in all kind of red and orange lighting, and I had another club scene coming up, and I thought it'd be nice to do this one and kind of like a blue jazz feeling, you know, like blue neon and green. And and I said, Bill, what's this location like? He goes, oh, it's all red leatherette seats and and wooden countertops and and <laughs> brick walls. And I go, oh, so it's red on red on brown. I, you know, so. Yeah, learned from experience that you can throw all the blue light you want on a red wall. It just doesn't work. So I wasn't going to fight the location, you know, with my ideas. So I just have to save that idea for the next location that more of my work. You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're having your own prep process um, is, it makes all the sense in the world, but I, I, I also noticed that Amy and Dan on set, Um, you know situations are created on the fly a great deal of the time in terms of this is a one or so all of these things now change
0: yeah it's funny on the pilot we had this even in the interview she warned me that she wanted to play the scene where midge comes to her parents apartment and tells them that joel and her have broken up joel has left her that she wanted to play it in one shot From the moment uh, Abe storms out of the living room, goes into his den, she chases him into the den, then he goes into the foyer, then Rose crosses in, goes down the hall, then they go back to the living room. And she kept saying, it's all got to be one shot. And And, you know, I thought about it. And my fear was just this was a real location. It's not a soundstage. So can I light these three or four rooms and not see the lighting in the ceiling as i back into the next room i you know i had to keep going back location and walking backwards and trying to see what point do i see the ceiling in the previous room and how high do the lights have to be and can i get them flush enough to the ceiling and how am i going to rig that
1: yeah um,
0: those sort of problems but other but it was funny i had time to think about it we we rehearsed it on stage on an empty stage with all the apartment marked out with tape so i actually had a sense of how much space we had to work in um that never happened again you know once we built these sets uh you know amy will design a wonder that goes through every room in that apartment on the fly you know but it's a sound stage and it's it's to some degree been pre-lit um and it's a lot easier to uh to kind of do this sort of stuff on the fly but it's just it was just funny that i was so warned the first the pilot episode but after that it was just like constantly doing these these elaborate shots uh On the morning of, basically,
1: yeah. What point during season one, or or was it not really towards the end until we were mostly on stage? Because I I was curious as to, I mean, it seemed obvious to me how happy you would be and all the all the crew and 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 well, every technical person to move to a stage with flyaway walls and ceilings just changes every single Um, aspect the the sound people as well
0: bill tends to build very solid sets so they actually don't have a lot of flyaway walls you know Uh the apartment set is is almost every room is double walled because one room leads to the next room so it was we never did pull a real wall uh, except in the when you get to the very last room where it's the end of the soundstage set there's (laughs) no there's no backside of that wall so we pulled the wall in the bathroom once or twice because we could actually get wide enough to see the tub in the foreground. Uh that's about the only time we pulled a wall in that in that space. Uh we might have pulled a window out of the frame once just to be able to back a crane. Uh, I think Eric had to do that for mm-hmm. for an episode. Um
1: so the French ceilings, doors. Yeah the,
0: the ceilings are solid. Yeah we do pull doors off hinges all the time. Um, and I once had to like saw a hole in the back wall of the of the linen closet in the hallway because Amy wanted to Jim McConkey to back into the closet and then pivot 180 degrees. So the only way to do that was actually to, to cut away the back end of the closet, which is the parents' bedroom on the other side. So um, I had to warn Bill Groom that they would have to patch up that set at some point. Um, but Charlie, Sharon, our key group is more than happy to bring out a chainsaw if, if he's given permission.
1: I um, noticed that.
0: Yeah. We had a just in season five, we had a shot with Amy where it was three people talking in a booth at the uh, at the restaurant set the um, two shore set, and Amy did not want to shoot the whole scene looking three people into a wall the whole time because that's where the booth was. So we had to wrap around the booth till we looked a little more into the restaurant again, which meant the camera had to swing around and back through a wall. So Charlie Sharon cut a door out of that wall and then sealed it. So someone behind it would magically swing the wall open like a door as as Jim sort of pirouetted and backed and and then stepped through the hole. Um, But uh, that's something you can do on stage you can't do in a location, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, We the sets were built right from the start for the series, but there was some downtime where they had to switch Midge's apartment over to the Weissman apartment once she moved out. Um, So... Uh, Eric Moynier shot the Midge apartment scenes in episodes two and three. And then I shot The Day She Moved. And then then they spent like two weeks reconstructing that set to turn it into the Weissman apartment. Um, We went back to the, you know, Joel's office. And obviously the factory floor uh, for the Maisel and Roth uh, was a real factory floor. Um, But as you know, eventually season two we built a sort of partial set of joel's office um just so we could uh control that and and go there regularly and stuff like that so more sets started accumulating over time gaslight was another set that was a real space in the pilot it was a theater arts community theater space in uh, the lower east side and then we had to reconstruct that on stage
1: yeah so um Speaking of Maisel and Roth, so that original location, very famous um, operation. I remember me- meeting some of the folks uh, who, who uh, ran it and still building suits for heads of states and presidents, for that matter, um, how either daunting or exciting for you. When you location scout and come across a place like this, that's going to be um, you know, a, a pretty important piece to the series. Well,
0: you know, as you remember, that factory floor is just a zoo of of detail, you know, like like of tables and machines and lights. It when I scouted it, the first thing that struck me is that it's so brightly lit naturally yeah. that I didn't need to do anything lighting wise. In fact, every scene, basically, my job was to figure out what the camera and the actors were going to do, and then go around and turn off a third of the overhead lights because it was just too much. I would right. otherwise everyone would be lit from both sides equal amounts, and it just get flat on flat. And so, I'd go around with Jenny, and I'd say, take that two bit uh, fixture, and maybe take the next two down off so out, and then you know we just subtracted lights. They were all. Slightly not period correct in that they look like fluorescent tubes, but they're actually LED tubes um, that they installed. But, you know, but they look like fluorescents, so they're period correct in that aspect. I think the only issues I had in that space besides bumping into things, we were constantly moving, trying to move heavy stuff out of the way of Jim McConkey. Right, right. uh poor Kara Haas, our uh, onset dresser, was just, you know, because you think, oh, it's just the big pile of of bins and booths and and stuff that you just shove it out of your way but of course it's a working factory floor it's not like you can just walk out of there having decimated the place you have to kind of restore it back to what it was as soon as you as you leave that space so you're constantly shoveling things around and then shoveling back to the correct spots my only problem was that um in so many windows there were they were covered over with grating and metal and, and factory stuff, but there were still rows of windows on two sides. And so if we'd ever tried to do night for day or day for night, it would have been difficult. Um, and I also had a hard time controlling the time of day. Like I tried in the last, I think the season to make it look sunset in there by putting some powerful tungsten lights through the windows to make yeah. this sunset effect. But It barely got into the room the room is so bright inside that even the brightest movie lights you can put out on a construction crane or condor barely register one within five feet past the window because the interior is so brightly lit um so it wasn't a you know a lot of ways to manipulate i think the hardest thing we did in there was that whole night scene where um you find a joel waiting to to stop the people who are breaking in yeah uh, at night it had to all look amy wanted it to look like it was just moonlit um or street lamp lit uh but i think we actually did shoot that in the daytime so i actually had to put black curtains on the outside of the building and then light it with some lights in the room that looked like they were coming from the street uh which was difficult because i had to really tell amy i can't see 360 degrees here because i'm faking that this shaft of street lighting is coming from a block away when it's actually just coming 15 feet away from the actors um and i had to hide that to camera and, and and there's so much stuff in that room that even trying to do that just an effect of one shaft of street light there's like 30 objects that didn't block it before it reaches you or joel you know i'm like constantly like moving that light foot left or right and then taking some taking a hanging fluorescent and chaining it higher out of the way of that light and then yeah it was it was just a labyrinth um so but that was one of the more difficult uh scenes lighting wise the other hard thing was the your office you know because that was a real space yeah tiny tiny space in the end of the factory and uh um you couldn't make it bigger you know (laughs) we couldn't a wall or anything like that so every time we
1: ended up in there it was always just very tight Uh so. yeah um so a friend of ours attended some sort of um either seminar or or q a uh he is a cinematographer himself and a director and um I knew he was such an immense fan. I offered him an opportunity to cough up a couple of questions, one of which I seem to have hijacked. He's asking about determining uh, your color um, for the series, along with so many colorful costumes and sets. And we, I feel we've addressed that. Um, moving on. Uh, oh, how did you get that one onto the boat in front of the Statue of Liberty? Was that photographers camera flash a shot blend
0: no it is a true uh wonder there's no there's no hidden cut basically it's what they now call a drone catch the uh it's the first time we the only time we've done it on our show because we don't use drones much but uh and it's illegal to use a drone over most of new york so that was the other issue we ran into but uh the idea is that the drone flies up to the boat and as it gets onto the deck someone catches it and then walks it the rest of the way as, as a handheld camera but it's stabilized because it has a gimbal on it um this is because Scott Ellis you know the script said there was an establishing shot of a boat in the harbor and then we go to a party on the boat and Scott said I can we get around just the generic establishing shot of a boat and somehow um put them together and I said well you know we could fly a drone and catch it uh, you know, it's uh, It sounded easier than it actually was because the only spot in which we could actually catch the boat, catch the drone, was when it flew onto the top deck under a roof. So essentially, there was a very short amount of space for someone to grab it and then walk with it. And he had to be in the shot. So we had to dress the drone operator in a tuxedo because he's on the deck of the boat. And if the camera's flying right at him. You know, so it's not like he can hide somewhere. We see the entire boat as the camera is approaching it, and it, as it passes him, he steps behind it and catches it, and then it shuts itself off, and then he walks forward with it. From then on, um, we had to practice it in the daylight to make sure it worked, and then and then did it on the night of. And I had to figure out how to light a boat and out in open water from a distance from another boat basically a lighting boat and then how to light the party scene on the deck so that we could shoot 360. Essentially the the deck party had to be self-lit and it had to be powered by the boat itself too so that was an issue um but that was all a a single drone shot uh
1: and where does the um um fly a drone and then catch it idea come from well I'd, I'd read about
0: it and and actually uh um Leslie uh, Foster Robson, our visual effects supervisor, had just done one on the Gilded Age. So um, she showed me what she had done. That was a day exterior shot um, somewhere in Long Island, I think. The trouble we found is that in New York, you can't fly a drone over land and you can't fly it over people. So the drone could not fly over the party goers on the boat. It couldn't take off from land. It couldn't land on land. So the only... The drone company has a whole system where they, they launch their drones from a boat and then there's only so many zones over water you're allowed to fly that drone in new york um you have to have an faa pilot on the radio the whole time because he has to talk to the uh, helicopters and the planes that fly over new york all the time so there's so many restrictions that it's very limiting using a drone in in new york uh, but this was you know a scene on in the harbor so It was all, you know, we scout in the daytime and and ask, is this a zone we can fly a drone off of and into and and uh, work? Needless to
1: say, you figured it out.
0: Yes, that's the, always, uh, that's my job, is to figure it out.
1: Yes, yes, of course, it ended awkwardly, because as you know, with these two parters, there isn't a break in the initial, actual conversation. I have to create that in post, and it's sloppy, it's, it's bumpy, it's awkward, and I thank you for your patience. Uh, but as you've heard in this incredible part one, he is um, he's very generous with his process and his thoughts and his, his memory is, is extraordinary. And he's he very generous with the details. So finding even a spot within that the body of our our first gathering and thinking how am I going to break this into two parts uh was uh, was not easy. So again thank you for your patience. Part 2 uh next week we'll pick up right where this one ended. Um yeah. I just please write to me at mrsmezzapot at gmail.com and let me know what you think listening to this man talk about creating the look and what it means to him, what his process is. I would love to hear from you. mrsmezzapot at gmail.com. Let's go to the mailbag now, shall we? I think we should. Yes. Let's open it up. Writing into the mailbag today is Lauren. Lauren uh, has come to us with a beautiful email um, with much needed and and appreciated information. Hello, Kevin and Jamie. As mentioned in previous emails and to Jamie on Instagram, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Love all the in-depth chat and actor deep dives. I have written a few essays on Maisel, including the book FYC that was just sent out to cast and industry folks, pages 28 and 29, and on show business in general in the early to mid-20th century. I also had a very short tenure as a Mrs. Maisel tour guide in New York City. Do I have some funny stories about that? Well, perhaps I should have Lauren on to talk about that. That might be fun. She goes on. I hope you're okay with me correcting a reference from the latest fantastic interview with the equally fantastic Caroline Aaron. You mentioned the tap-dancing kids at the Apollo as the Nicholas Brothers. Well, inspired by, I thought. But they would be in their late 40s by 1960, the actual Nicholas Brothers. The idea of those brothers is what I meant. Anyway, she goes on. I'm pretty sure that these two talented kids... Are the Hines brothers, Gregory and Maurice Hines? And she includes a great clip of Gregory Hines and his brother Maurice dancing in 1960, Um, which is pretty extraordinary. I should post it in the Instagram. Yeah. Uh, I double checked this and found a New York Times interview with Amy and Margaret Derricks where it's mentioned. The dancers that were used in the show are a real brother team named the Foreman brothers. Easy mistake to make because the Heinz brothers, I'm sure were influenced heavily by such legends as the Nicholas brothers. Also, Kevin as a fellow dyslexic podcaster. I feel your pain in pronouncing people's names. I came to the conclusion. I had to have my interviewees introduce themselves. LOL. Take care. Lauren Lauren. These are all great uh, insights, comments, and corrections, and offerings. Let the guests introduce themselves. Look at that. I would have saved myself so much pain. Um, Thank you, Lauren. And I do think you would make an interesting guest. Let's, uh, Let's create that moment, shall we? I do love enjoying... Fans of the series and fans of the podcast—I made that clear from the beginning. And what better way? Um. So yeah, I've got your email, Lauren. I'm gonna uh, try to set that up. Yeah, let's do that. How exciting! All right, closing up the mail back, and thank you, Lauren. All right, that is our uh, show for today. Our uh, uh, you know my my appreciation to each and every one of you uh, p- please continue to write to us at my miss gmail.com please continue to rate and review the show subscribe tell everyone you've ever met. you know what? Tell a few more people. tell strangers. I've never asked before for you to all right it's time tell a stranger, won't you? um yeah, part two David Mullen next week. Until then, I'll see you in my dreams, and please, please, be kind to each other, won't you? Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Mazel Pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollock, research writer, producer Jamie Fox, and our engineer recording post production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Mazel Pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q Code. Q Code Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know. I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal.